Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. It's my pleasure to welcome today's guest, General Stanley McChrystal. A transformational leader with a remarkable record of achievement, General McChrystal was called one of America's greatest warriors by Secretary of Defence Robert Gates. He is widely praised for launching a revolution in warfare by leading a comprehensive counterterrorism organization that fused intelligence and operations, redefining the way military and government agencies interact. From 2003 to 2008, General McChrystal commanded the Joint Special Operations Command, responsible for leading the nation's deployed military counterterrorism efforts around the globe. In June 2009, he received his fourth star and assumed command of all international forces in Afghanistan. Since retiring from the military, General McChrystal has served on a long list of corporate board of directors and is a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. He is the author of best-selling leadership books, My Share of the Task, a memoir, Team of Teams, New Rules for Engagement for a Complex World, and Leaders, Myth and Reality. General McChrystal founded the McChrystal Group in January 2011. So, General, very good afternoon and a, um, a warm welcome to the Centre for Armour Leadership podcast. It's, a, it's an absolute privilege to, to be able to speak to you today and, of course, an honour to have you on the show. It's my honour. So, General, we're going we're gonna to dive straight in um, and, and I'd like to start by taking you back to some of your, your early memories. You, you come from a very proud heritage of military service. Your grandfather, a full colonel in the US Army, and I understand your father, a Major General, serving in Korea, twice in Vietnam, uh, decorated with four silver stars, the Bronze Star and Distinguished Service Medal. All four of your siblings have either served in the military or are married to people in the military. So no pressure on you when you signed on the dotted line. How did these early years being brought up in, in such a, a rich military culture, a rich military family, shape you as the person you are today and the leader you are today? Well, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. And thanks for bringing all that up. I actually have five siblings, four brothers and a sister, and all of that applies to exactly what you said. Uh, you know, I grew up in a military household. My father was a soldier. I was very, very aware of that. But most of my youth, he had come and he was serving in the Washington, D.C. area, and then he would leave us and go to Vietnam and come back. So I didn't see my father in the field or around troops. I knew of him doing that, but, but I didn't watch it up close. So he was not a stereotypical soldier figure to me, a martinet. That was not his style. The person who really affected me was my mother. She had come from a family in the South with a, a pretty rich history by itself, but she married my father as a young lady, and she'd gone through this life, had six kids, and then when my father took off and went to Vietnam, left her with six kids to raise, you suddenly realize what a heavy lift that is. And so the idea of service in what I saw on a daily basis was my mother's stoicism. And then the idea of my father, the letters we would get from him, and I would visualize what he was doing in Vietnam and whatnot. But it was that reality with my mother that, that really struck home. That's interesting. Did that, how did that shape you when you were leading in the, in the military in terms of the importance of our families? Um, and we've talked about this recently here at the, uh, the Centre for Armour Leadership, and this horrible concept of our partners being dependents. And actually, we're the ones that are dependent on them to allow us to do the jobs we do. Absolutely. I mean, I remember thinking of my mom, and then when I married my wife, Annie, we'd been married 44 years. I was a second lieutenant. 
And she was the daughter of a career soldier. And so she'd grown up in that environment. And then I watched her do the same thing, not because I told her to, not because there was a manual or handbook, but simply she seemed to take to it instinctively. And then as we got into the difficult periods, because earlier in my career, we were not as operational. The United States did not have as many wars as obviously after 2001. But she and her, her fellow military spouses just sort of quietly picked it up and they just carried it. And there was not a lot of drama. There was just this very competent thought. And because I was in Joint Special Operations Command for so long and I was deployed for so long, we essentially would send our problems home. We would send our wounded and our dead home and we wouldn't go with them. It wasn't like the, the unit coming home. We would rotate things. And so the families were constantly dealing with this over an extended period. And I never remember them pulling to the front to say, we have this problem you have to solve. All I ever remember is everything's okay back here. Don't worry. Even though you know that on day-to-day -day life, it's not all okay. Yeah. yeah. That's real service there, isn't it? Definitely a, a joint effort. So talking about your um, formative years as a, a, a commander, then you spoke about your time as, uh, as a second lieutenant. And and a lot of our listeners would be well-versed as General Sam McChrystal, the JSOC commander, uh, the NATO commander in Afghanistan, but perhaps less familiar with your uh, time as a, a lieutenant captain major. What, what did you take away from those those early stages of your career? We all are products of our time. I entered active service out of West Point in 1976. And the United States Army was pretty bad shape then. Damaged, almost a Vietnam hangover. And so the 82nd Airborne that I arrived to was not the storied unit of World War II. It was rebuilding itself. And so as a consequence, the experience I had with both the leadership over me and some of the soldiers under me was a lot more disappointing in the short term than I wanted it to be. Uh, at the same time, you realize these are good people. We just got to fix the system again. We've got to fix the culture of the organization again. We've got to relearn leadership. We've got to get more professional. And so I was fortunate because the period from when I became as a second lieutenant, it was constantly improving. We were almost at the nadir of the United States Army in the 20th century. And we started getting better and you started seeing decisions made at the policy level to extend command tours, to do centralized selection. We started to see a better quality of recruit coming in and a better ability to re-enlist people. So it kept getting better, but still in my early years, I was a micromanager. I mean, I had been convinced I wanted to be competent. So the first thing you do is try to put your arms around what it is to be competent. And then you want to produce a good organization. And, and the, my reflexive response was to tell everybody what to do. Yeah. To, and I learned later that that was not the best way. But in those early years, that was my initial approach. So I guess that leads on to my next question. We talk a lot about in terms of leader and leadership development, we, we tend to focus quite a bit on training and education. And of course, they're really important and they are the foundation. But a lot of our development is through experience day-to-day -day experience in peace as well as on uh, on operations um, and of course we we learn as much from our failures 
the things we do wrong as we do from our successes in some cases more more so so again reflecting on that earlier period where did you get it wrong where didn't you quite hit the standard you you expected of yourself and uh, and what did you learn from it well over and over i remember once when i was in u.s army ranger school even before i got to my first unit and they rotated the patrol leader to be graded and so you'd be a patrol leader and be graded during that period then you would go back into the platoon and do another role and passing that patrol was extraordinarily important to that patrol leader so the the idea of teamwork you all support the person during their period essentially being graded and i remember probably the low point of my professional life that early was we were angry at one of our fellow students. He really wasn't a very good Ranger student and there was a lot not to like, but he was made the patrol leader about three in the morning as we've been conducting this patrol and suddenly he's already tired, he's told he's in charge. And we are move, we're moving to a patrol base and pulling security. And we moved to his patrol base and he came around and told everybody, okay, we're gonna pull security, gonna place weapons. And we just said, nope, we're not doing it. And we literally, me and a, about seven or so other guys, just went to bed, just got under our poncho liners and went to sleep. And we were trying to punish him. But, you know, it was the most uniquely unprofessional, disappointing thing I've ever done. And even in the moment, I felt strange. But afterward, I was ashamed of it, even though I never thought the guy was a good ranger. The point is that. In the, uh, in the aftermath of that, I just talked away and I said, you know, it doesn't matter if my leader's good. I still have a responsibility as a follower. And so you, you go through places, you make big mistakes. I had another night when I stumbled and got it right. I had moved my mortar platoon into position and I was a hard ass. We're going to dig mortar pits wherever we went. And it's a lot of work to dig 81 millimeter mortar pits. So the platoon did that. And it was drizzling slightly. And so it was pretty unpleasant. Un, uh, and then I went to open the range so we could live fire. And it turns out that I had brought the platoon to the wrong location. And so I called range control. I said, hey, you know, you got to help me out here. You know, you got to open this firing point for me because this is where we are and this is where we're dug in. And of course, in the history of range control, they don't help many lieutenants out. And they didn't that night. And so I had that moment where we had to move. So we had to pick up, we had to fill in the holes because that was a rule. And we went to the new spot. And when we got to the new spot, it's now like two in the morning, it's still raining. And I got that moment because I've said, wherever we go, we will dig in. Now they already dug in once. And because of my mistake here, we were going to do it again. And so I had one of these moral moments and I said, okay, we're digging. And we did. Now, of course, I was smart enough to get down the hole and dig with them because, you know, otherwise I would have been even more unpopular. But, you know, you have those experiences that just get implanted on you. And I had a series of those. I had a series of really good leaders and some not so good leaders. And every one of them left me with something. So I guess that gets to my next question, which is about how, how difficult leadership could be to implement. And you've said before that leadership is a choice and that it's not complex, but it is hard to continually implement what is right. And we t we've talked about this here as well, about the importance of building habits of good leadership. So you've almost got a muscle memory 
uh, of what good looks like, particularly in terms of, of moral courage, which you've touched on already. Um, it also has a, a synergy with almost a motto of the cow, uh, the fundamentals of leadership endure, but the context changes. So on that, I wondered what your fundamentals of, of any leader might be and, and then how your leadership style has changed over time with different contexts. Yeah, I, I think we all believe that leaders have to have integrity and courage and, and things like that. But I would say that the single most important is self-discipline. Because as you mentioned, most of us know what we ought to do as leaders. Maybe not the nuanced parts, but we know what we ought to do. The question is, do we have the self-discipline and sometimes the courage associated with that to actually do that? Uh, and I would argue that in many cases, we don't. We rationalize ourselves away. You know, I find in the American Army, I sometimes found that commissioned officers will overthink the problem. I don't know how many times in my life we get to something we're going to do or not do. And you'd be sitting there and you'd be seeing black, white and shades of gray and you'd be trying to discuss it out. One of my senior NCOs would look at me and says, what are you talking about? This is what we should do and this is what we shouldn't do. And invariably, they'd be absolutely embarrassingly right. And you go, yeah, that's just what I was about to order. Uh, but, but I think sometimes you do have to get to 30,000 feet, blur your eyes, see the big colors, and just do what you know you ought to do. Absolutely. I want to come back to, you mentioned um, being a follower there in the, in the previous answer. You've written about soldiers being led by soldiers of a lower rank than you at particular moments in your career and how you were better for it. I think it's a really important concept that, that people always think of leadership as leading those subordinate to you and being led by those senior to you. And the reality is you know, we are frequently led by those who are junior to us, um, even if momentarily. So I think it's a really important concept, this, this notion of followership, which we don't discuss enough. What, what does followership mean to you? And, and how do our soldiers lead without being in a position of, of command or, or authority? Really important point. I always admired the British Army from my earliest stage because the strength of the non-commissioned officer corps. And that just doesn't happen. It doesn't because you go and recruit better people. It's because you create a culture where that happens. And so in my experience, the first thing that has to occur is the leader has got to be self-confident and self-disciplined enough not to have to appear in charge or appear infallible, or act all-knowing. You've got to be able to say, this is a hairy problem. Who here has a good idea? And if somebody's got a better idea than you, say, okay, that, that makes great sense. You've also got to be able to be corrected, sometimes uh, publicly. I had a non-commissioned officer who was a platoon sergeant when I was a ranger company commander. And he had the greatest thing, he was brilliant, and he was really effective. And he loved, you know, he loved his leaders and, and I was very close to him. But what would happen is I would tell him, I'd say, okay, Sergeant Madison, I want you to do X. And he'd go, very good, sir. And then there'd be a pause and I'd look at him and he'd say, absolutely. Let me just clarify. You want me to violate the law of armed conflict. And I'd just roll my eyes and say, what are you talking about? He says, if I execute that order, I will actually be doing an illegal act. That's what you want me to do. Very good. And then, of course, you kind of turn like he was getting off. Turn. I go, whoa, 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 stop. Get back here. What should we be doing? And then, of course, he would know. Um, but, but that kind of shaping me as a company commander, and he was shaping his platoon leaders, he went, there wasn't in it. It wasn't in a smart ass way. It was kind of tongue in cheek, but it was 
very effective. And when followers have got to own the problem also, I think the worst thing you can ever do is like when I was in ranger school, I described, we just left the patrol leader out there hanging and said, okay, good luck. Actually, followers have got to say, our leaders got this mission. It's not their mission, it's our mission. And we have got to be as loyal to that mission as we do to our leader. And so whatever we can do to make the organization successful, and that is our responsibility. And in the short term, that's you know what action is right on the battlefield or, or garrison. In the long term is how do you make your leader more successful and more effective? If you undercut them, if you talk behind their back, if you, if you do those what I call cheap leadership tricks, where you demonize higher headquarters, you get some short-term popularity inside your organization until everybody sort of realizes that higher headquarters isn't really demons. They're just normal people. Right. And then your credibility erodes over time. Um, but, but I think all of us have been tempted in one time or another to, to pit people against each other, to undermine them just because in the moment it seems like an expedient thing to do. It's just corrosive of the organization and of us as leaders. And I guess underpinning all that is that mutual trust, isn't it? And, and, and on the leader's perspective, from a leader's perspective, is, is humility. To, to accept those challenges, humility for your NCO to speak to you with, uh, with the best intentions like that. I'd like to move on to shared consciousness and purpose. Remote leadership is a hot topic, and, and, and thank you again for joining us at the uh, Remote Leadership Conference last week. A COVID-19 crisis has driven organizations around the world uh, to drastically change, in some instances, their operating model and leaders at, at many levels to refine their leadership approach. And one could argue that your team of teams approach that you spearheaded with um, the Joint Special Operations Command from 2003 in Iraq plays absolutely to the to the heart of this. So for, for our listeners that are not familiar with that concept, that approach, the team of teams approach, could you uh, could you expand on that now, please? Absolutely. And, and it's not really original, but it, it was original in our execution of it. And what happened was we had a counter-terrorist mission that instead of being a single hostage rescue or counter-hijacking was to defeat an entire organization, Al-Qaeda in Iraq in this case, and then actually across the, the region, Al-Qaeda itself. And so it was a big long-term mission, not a specific single focused task. And what that meant is we had to disperse our organization and we had to disperse physically and we had to give everybody different pieces of the problem, but all the problem had to link together because just as the enemy network operated and was self-supporting and, and uh, uh, constantly growing, we couldn't truncate ours or silo ourselves and look in, in certain areas and solve the problem because the problem was the bigger problem. So the challenge was, how do you do that? Because typically, we like to take an approach that, that someone calls MISI, mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive, where we take a, a task and we cut it into pieces and nobody's overlaps with anybody else's and everybody does their part and it all fits together perfectly, except it doesn't work because you can never get it close enough and life just overlaps. And so what we did was instead of trying to do that, we give everybody a sector or a very finite responsibility and they don't have to worry about anybody else. 
we admitted the fact that we were all this one big organic problem. And so we connected all the different parts of the force, not up through the chain of command, but laterally and horizontally directly. We not only allowed it, we encouraged and you could say forced it. So the entire organization is now seeing all the parts of the threat, not just the part in closest proximity to them. They're seeing it constantly change. And what we're doing at the highest level is instead of telling everybody specifically what to do, because conditions were too dynamic for us to ever get that right, we kept bringing people up to a higher altitude and saying, this is the mission. This is what we're trying to do. Do whatever it is best facilitates this and communicate constantly every day. In fact, every hour of every day so that as the enemy is constantly morphing, our response is constantly morphing. It is self-correcting and it is also prioritizing assets and focus where it's needed because everybody can see it. It was a complete departure from the culture I'd grown up with in the military. Um, but, but it was now possible because information technology and other things, uh, aircraft and whatnot, allowed you to, to change fast enough to actually make that work. I mean, JSOC maintained its, its traditional military hierarchy, its rank structure. And of course, that's important in terms of command, authority, and accountability. But yet, as you've described there, increasing the ability to share information, shared understanding, um, rapid communication, and of course, delegate decision-making to, to where it's needed. This, of course, is interesting, not just to the special forces community, but our conventional forces who, of course, must maintain a, a hierarchy as well, but at the same time, want to engender this culture of empowerment, so to speak. So what were the biggest challenges you found in terms of implementing this, this cultural change? And, and certainly doing it at pace on operations. Sure. The, the biggest problem was cultural. Now, we had to first get over the hurdle of being able to physically connect to everyone because we started this in 2003. So we had to spend a lot of money on equipment so we could get secure video teleconferences to all the places. And JSOC was at 76 different bases simultaneously connecting all the time. So you had to spend some money, get some equipment. You had to start processes of passing information. The far more challenging task was the culture. How do you convince people that this isn't just another micromanagement tool? And so what we did was we came up with an eyes-on, hands-off philosophy. And the eyes-on means you've now got the ability to see more what's happening physically through things like unmanned aerial vehicles, but also through the movement of data and whatnot. So you can have much more information all the time but instead of using that as a way to centralize the decision-making, you do the opposite. You sort of throw the pyramid on its head. And when you do that, what happens is now people at lower parts of the organization are given contextual understanding they never had before. They understood what was in their trench, in their lane. They'll, they'll deal with that. Now you're telling people, this is the whole fight. This is what we're trying to do. You're in this trench. And you know there's tasks there, but the reality is the ability to operate outside the trench and support other people and whatnot is critical. And you're going to have to do it in real time, meaning you can't always ask uh, the CG or anybody above you's permission to do that. You have a responsibility automatically. So when I took over JSOC in the fall of 2003, I personally approved every operation because that was our tradition. 
and they were important operations and life and death and whatnot. But we realized that was far too slow, and I wasn't value add to a, to approving most of those. There were people far more junior to me who know how something should be done if they know what to do, if they know what we are trying to do. So my mission changed from being a decision maker to being a priority setter and an, a, uh, a person who created an environment in which that happened. Now, you mentioned, importantly, we didn't reorganize the JSOC. We kept the military structure because for things like human resources and logistics, it works really well. And it gives you a trellis you can hang on to. But, but we had to change how information moved. We had to democratize and free up the movement of information so it could go wherever it needed to in real time. And we pushed decision-making as far down as we could. We used to say, decentralize till you're uncomfortable and then go one more level. And th that's when you're pushing down to Corporal Smith down there and you've always been a little leery of Corporal Smith for good reasons and suddenly you're, he's a decision maker. But you know, so be it. Because at the end of the day, Corporal Smith sees the problem at a distance we don't see the problem. He just has to understand what we're trying to do. And so it was a significant culture change, hardest for people in the middle, probably next hardest for people at the top like me, because you know I spent all those years trying to be the commanding general so I could be in charge and thinking that that was my responsibility. And I was giving away much of what I thought were my rights, prerogatives, and responsibilities for a different set of responsibilities and then pushing it down to people who sometimes make mistakes. Did, did you feel that your leaders were prepared? And I imagine there's a there's a real range here where some will relish that empowerment, relish that responsibility and decision-making, whereas others perhaps were just not used to it and uncomfortable with that. Yeah, a number of them were not prepared. Uh, in JSOC, we had the advantage that you get a synergy when a number of people start doing it. And in that special operations world, you had more mature people, more experienced, a greater percentage were comfortable with it quickly. Mm. And there were, you know, the holdouts. In a conventional unit where you may not have as much of that, and maybe even the leadership is not quite as comfortable with that. If the leadership is skeptical and the junior people try to do it, you have problems. If the junior people are skeptical, you know, you got to get all the the, the pieces to change at the same time or to, to evolve sort of together. And we were fits and starts. But once we got to the point where I think people saw that this was a more effective way to operate, then it was just, okay, how do we make it better? Wasn't a question of we shouldn't do this. And what were your key lessons in terms of driving that cultural change? You, you're working in the corporate world now, for example. What, what advice do you give to leaders when they're trying to implement cultural change? Yeah. The first is you don't have to have the right answer. I had no idea what I wanted JSOC to be. And had I had the right answer and I briefed it to the, you know, the sort of grizzled special operators, they'd have just thrown me out. Instead, what I did is I gave the big hand wave. I said, okay, we're going to do whatever it takes to win. And we're losing right now. So this current course of action, status quo, is off the table. So we're going to change that. You guys figure out what it takes. And here's what I'll tell you. Whatever we do that works, we'll do more of. Whatever we do that doesn't work, we'll stop. And I think that was unintentional on my part is because I didn't have the answer. Hmm. But what it did was it tamped down the naysayers because who can be against we'll do what works. 
And so the first thing I'd say is don't think you have to have this detailed blueprint for the future. If you know that the current situation is unacceptable, start things moving. You know, you can't steer anything till it's moving anyway. And so start the movement and don't be afraid of that. And don't let the people who go, well, let's not rush to failure, you know, cause you to stop and, and be timid. Just get it moving. A lot of good things come with that. The next thing is communicate constantly. Tell people what you're trying to do. Tell people what you're doing. Tell people what you just did. You know, communicate till people are sick of it. Till they, every time you open your mouth, they start to, to mime the words with you. Because just about then, it'll start to sink in. The next thing is you're going to have screw-ups. And so those are times when you can't take counsel of your fears. You've just got to say, this is the last job I'm ever going to be in. Just look yourselves in the mirror and make that promise to yourself, even though it may not be true. But if you don't move that way, you'll, you'll be so worried. You'll be looking over your shoulder. I can't change because they might not like this or this or this. Because if you don't let go to the side of the pool, you can't swim. And then the final thing I'd say is most of the brains in an organization are spread across the organization. It's just like when I was in a mechanized infantry unit, I remember we talked about fuel and my commander said, you know, most of the diesel we have is in the tanks of our tracks because we spread it out there. That's the same with brains. And so if you don't spread out the decision-making and if you don't push it down, all of those other brains are just sitting there waiting for your limited brain to come up with a brilliant plan. And, and I don't have a brilliant plan very often. So it's better for me to engage some others. And everything you've learned there on operations and, and no doubt transferred across to Afghanistan, which we'll come on to as well. I guess we're having discussions in the army now about how do we bring that mindset from operations back into, into barracks, into peacetime? Because arguably operations lends itself to, to that sort of mindset and that sort of approach a lot more readily than it does back in peacetime. So you've got shared purpose, you've got greater freedoms or a higher risk threshold, relatively healthy resources. And of course, the, the converse of that coming back into peacetime. Do you understand those challenges? And, and I wonder how as organizations we get over that. Yeah, I understand the challenges. We've all lived them. For example, when you are in on the battlefield and things are not going well in a strategic and operational sense, People don't nitpick how you do your business. And so in 2003, when I took JSOC, there weren't many people telling me what to do or not do. They were just desperate for, not just in my command, but outside for us to start to change the dynamic. In peacetime, at the other end of the spectrum, the opposite is true. Leaders who are on the battlefield have tremendous opportunity for initiative or innovation. In peacetime, we have laws, regulations, habits, and perceptions. I remember commanding, you know, battalion in peacetime and whatnot. There were all of these rules about how you operated at Fort Bragg. I mean, they were, they were anal in the extreme. Now, so, some of them made sense, but when you put them all together, they didn't make sense. You know, all linked together, they became such a constraint on what you could and couldn't do in training. That it was very difficult to do what you had to do. Now, then there's the gray area when you have war and this garrison mentality overlapping. And Afghanistan had a lot of that. Mm. The, uh, the United States and some other countries had a rule that 
soldiers off base had to wear their body armor, every piece of the body armor that they'd been issued. And when there was a casualty in the American army, you had to report with the casualty report what body armor that soldier was wearing. And if they weren't wearing all the prescribed body armor, there was a, an answer that had to be given on why that was the case. And yet, as you well know, when you are walking the mountains of Afghanistan, body armor is not something you want to have on. It's more hindrance than help. And yet we put leaders in a position where if they're going to do the right thing, they're also disobeying orders. And creating that dynamic is difficult on the force. And you could argue it undermines some values of integrity and all this kind of things because people don't self-report, hey, we're not wearing body armor. They just do it. And so we've got to step back at, at a the higher level and say, what are we doing that makes it harder for our forces, not only to do it in the moment in combat, but to learn how to do it in training? Yeah, absolutely. Sticking with your time in Iraq as Commander JSOC, and you spoke at the Cal Remote Leadership Conference last week about the digital dispersed nature of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, AQI. What, what did you learn about dispersed leadership from that organization and, and particularly its leader, um, Abu Musab al-Sakawi. Yeah, you always learn a lot, a lot from your enemy if they're good. And the thing that struck us is in 2003, when Al-Qaeda in Iraq emerges, we expect another Al-Qaeda. You know, sort of like what came in 1988 in Pakistan, which is sort of a traditional pyramid-shaped hierarchy. Instead, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which emerged under a different name, under Abu Musab al-Sakawi, has different DNA. And we, at first, were mistaken about it because we think, no, the DNA of the traditional hierarchy has got to be inside there, and we're just seeing the noise and the signals buried, and we just got to find the signal and destroy it. But then over time, we learned, no, they were actually different. And they, I don't think it was intentional. It was the fact that information technology had proliferated. And so suddenly, they didn't have to come together for midnight meetings. They didn't have to have this tight, strict chain of command. In fact, they learned that they were better without it. They were better to have the movement, and they would put out instructions almost publicly that could be picked up. But all different parts of the organization could see, okay, that's what we're trying to do. That's what we do. And they create shared consciousness. And then they've got the equivalent of mission command because they can't do otherwise. Yeah. Uh, and that made them extraordinarily effective and lethal, but it also made them very resilient because no single part of the organization is critical. Even when we killed Zarqawi himself, he had already accomplished what he needed to accomplish in terms of creating the psyche of the organization and the, the idea of it. So when he was killed, it was, it was important, but it was not in any way sufficient to change uh, the overall fight. And, and understanding that these are the threats we face now, if we think of cyber threats in the world or, or even criminal threats, they don't have to be a, a shark. They can be a school of piranha. And the school of piranha don't even have to know that they're part of a school of piranha. All they have to do is do their thing and find that they get synergy with people that they don't knowingly coordinate with. They just do. And so that swarming effect occurs and it makes it pretty hard to stop. Do you find it quite difficult to get your team to recognize that the problem you were facing was not one that they were familiar with? One of the things we, we've spoken about a lot is 
we are working in an increasingly complex world. The operational threats that we have to deal with are increasingly complex. And therefore, the requirement to understand what that threat is and an evolving threat that morphs and changes is, is absolutely critical. So I'm just trying to get at how you prepare your team to, to have that mindset where they're constantly questioning, constantly challenging and trying to, trying to prove their understanding. I guess in the, in, the, in the military, we are very task focused. Traditionally, we're task focused and we just want to drive solutions and we don't spend enough time understanding what the problem is before pushing ahead with a solution of some description. Do you think we're changing and how do you, how do you generate that mindset in your team, which gets after understanding the problem? I don't know if we're changing. Um, I hope that we are, but you've, you've summarized it very well, because if you think back traditional military, what you want to do is defeat the enemy. So you have to find them, find out where the enemy's army is, move on it and, and do whatever kind of military operations are right. Nowadays you are, essentially battling against an environment that's been created partly by the enemy, partly by other factors. And so it's like being in a hurricane and maybe the enemy are flying things that are in that hurricane and they'll hit you and they'll kill you. But the hurricane is also part of the problem. In fact, you could argue that the hurricane is the problem. And so when you talk about understanding that situation, I don't think we do that very well. We, we keep wanting to look for the specifics. We want to find this bad guy. We want to find this tank division. And in reality, that the situation is that hurricane. And it's constantly changing. And so how do you appreciate more than just you really can't completely understand it? How do you appreciate how you have to operate in that environment? And can you change that environment? Sometimes you can reshape it. Other times you just have to weather parts of it to, to deal with other parts. And it, it just does not link up well with the tradition in, in our military forces to get a task, you know, a certain number of forces and have real clarity. I guess this feeds into my next question, which is about diversity of thought and experience and the importance of having that on your team in order to provide that challenge and think differently and think laterally against these complex problems. And a lot of the work we've done here at the Cal, and I know that you've done as part of the McChrystal Group, has, has highlighted the importance of diversity of thought and experiences as central pillars to success in a team. So how important is harnessing that collective talent within a team? And how effectively do you get every mind in the fight? It's, it's utterly essential, but it's not simple. It's not just getting people of different genders or something like that. It's getting different perspectives. And... Then the problem is, if you've got all these perceptions that are or perspectives that are very different, you can have the Tower of Babel and never have a conversation. So it's this really careful balance between getting all these diverse views on things and then still trying to get enough coherency on your estimate of the situation and your statement of the problem you're trying to solve to actually do something. Because just to stand there and have diverse perspectives and be bewildered by the moment isn't helpful. Um, so the reality, it does take some discipline. It takes some leadership. And sometimes that leadership says, okay, I've heard everybody's opinion. Now shut up. Here's what we're doing. Yeah. Because as we all know, any plan you come up with will not be a perfect one. But if it is poorly executed, it becomes terribly imperfect. Uh, and so that's that balance. And so I... 
I think as we seek different perspectives, we, we bring diversity and we do all these things, we're also going to have to train ourselves and all the participants how to, how to remain diverse, but be part of the solution and not just the naysayer. I want to bring a couple of themes together. We've spoken about culture. We've spoken about building teams. Both in your time as uh, JSOC commander from 2003 onwards and time, your time as NATO uh, commander in Afghanistan, there is a requirement for you to bring different cultures together across multiple sectors, not just within the military. And to look at Afghanistan as an example, I believe 46 different nations uh, as part of that coalition. What were the biggest barriers to bringing together those cultural uh, differences? And how do you maneuver around that military instinct for, for tribalism that we all know so well? Absolutely. The 46 nations in Afghanistan ranged in how well they were equipped, how well they were trained, how you know funded, and how much experience they had. And so some of the nations there had not been in combat since World War II, and they had very little to fall back on in terms of relevant, recent, you know, generational experience. Others had been in contact, combat constantly. Some had a lot of material, others didn't. Some had very uh, experienced national leadership. We had other units that were getting called by the president or prime minister of their nation directly down to the battalion commander in the field on a pretty frequent basis. So everybody's dynamic is different. So I think the first thing that I came to the conclusion is don't try to make them all the same. Don't try to make them all like the British Army or the French. Everybody's got to be what they are. They've just got to be an effective version of what they are, limits, limitations and all, because you're not going to fix very many, particularly with a rotational system. So that means that you've got to understand that, you've got to use people for their strengths, try to improve them somewhat, but don't, don't kid yourself. The second was don't create more inner turmoil than you already have. Don't go around criticizing other units for doing X or Y or one unit's paying off the Taliban and other. You can get in closed doors and you can have a conversation with the commander, but it's not the kind of thing you bitch about because that person's reality, that person's set of dynamics is very different from yours. Mm. And so you got to, now that doesn't mean you, you can be passive because you can't say, well, everybody's what they are. And so we're just can never get better than what we are. You've got to try to create synergy. And what I found in the nations is they all wanted to be better. They were all slightly frustrated and embarrassed by whatever shortcomings that they had. And if you gave them an opportunity to be better and encouragement and whatnot, you at least got more out of them. So I don't think publicly criticizing your comrades or fellow nations is a, is a good move. I don't think you can change your standards, meaning I had certain standards for American and British units that were different from standards for others. Mm-hmm. And I'd still communicate them, but I wouldn't go expect you know some of the countries to, to operate in the same way that i would absolutely force some of the ones i was more experienced with to do because i knew they were capable of doing that i know their circumstances would allow that yeah um but this is always going to be challenging moving on to risk um and you know better than anyone else the inherent risk in everything the military does whether it's um, low level training at unit level or conducting deliberate operations overseas, there's varying levels of risk that leaders must deal with. And I've read a recent paper of yours, A Conversation on Risk, in which you describe how most people interact with risk more intuitively, choose an instinct rather than a a discipline process. So I wonder if you could just unpack that for us, please. 
Sure. I think all of us have a set of risk management tools we use, and we go through filling out the matrix or do the mathematical equation, and we finish that, and then we go make the decision based upon something entirely different. Um, what's in our gut? We have a great story that we researched not long ago about the, the Iran rescue mission, Operation Eagle Claw 1980, and they went in and briefed the President of the United States when on the mission. And when he asked them what the probability of success was, they said 85%. And this is two combat veteran senior leaders, 85%. And yet, if you go back and do a mathematical look at this 10-step operation, and you even give each step of it a 0.9% chance of success, which is, of course, much higher than they had, you come down with less than a 35% chance. Now, that's a flawed system. I mean, you can't pretend that that math is perfect. But the reality is, if they'd said to the president 35%, he probably wouldn't have proved it. Yeah. And it doesn't make them wrong. They believed it was 85%. But, but we can't do math and pretend we're following the math and then make decisions other ways. The way I think about risk now, usually we say it's the probability of something and the consequences of if it does happen, and we'll figure that out. I think it's threats and vulnerabilities. You have threats that are out there. Some can be predicted and are known and some just emerge. And you have vulnerabilities, some of which you know about. The difference between the two is you can do more about vulnerabilities than you can about threats. Meaning if you have a cohesive organization that thinks on its feet, that shares information fast, anything that comes at them will be less threatening than if they are not. And so we spend a lot of time worried about whether, you know, the enemy's going to do this or, or this particular threat comes, a, a meteor comes and hits the earth, when we really can't do much about it. What we can do is be really good at responding to risk, be ex extraordinarily agile as organizations, be extraordinarily cohesive, share information constantly. And I think that's the best you can do. And if you do that well, you're pretty darn effective. And how do we stop people becoming risk averse, because the best leaders that we all know are the ones that see risk as an opportunity. Yeah, this is, it, this is easy to say and hard to do because we have leaders who do something that is risky, some level of risk, and it fails. And we say, well, there's gotta be accountability. Commander, you, you're captain, you run your ship aground, you lose command. General, you do X. The problem is nobody ever learns them. Nobody, we have no veterans of screw-ups mm. to go on. Nobody who's lost a battle who learned how to win. And usually coming out of a fight that you've lost, you learn a lot more than the one you want. Yeah. And so how do we create an environment? In, this, in the Second World War, the United States fired senior commanders all the time. Division commanders were relieved of command and then given another division three or four months later. And it's funny, that never happens in our military now. In fact, if you get a single chink in your armor or a, a ding in your record, you're through. You are not going to go up at all, which just tells people that if I can keep my uniform clean, you know, I have a very good chance of rising. When in reality, if you're in the game, on the field, your uniform is going to get dirty. But we, but we still struggle with that. Even the corporate world does that. They, they struggle to a great degree. If a leader, 
a CEO doesn't make quarterly numbers, you know, yeah. we'll pitch them. And maybe that's when they need to be talked to and, and explain it and then say, now get back in the game because you're now smarter than you were last quarter. And we've got to do that with our subordinates We because we always say this. We say, we want you to make mistakes. We want you to and learn from them. But then we've got to go back and see whether that's how we promote it on that basis. Yeah. And for personal experience, where, where have you managed risk well and in your language, where have you screwed up? Yeah. Um, I would say that in JSOC, we got very good at, we failed about 30% of the time. Mm -hmm. And at the height of the war, we were doing 300 raids a month in Iraq alone. So 90 missions a month would be failures and some would be spectacular failures, meaning you just slap your head, go, how could we be so stupid or so incompetent? And I learned over time, I didn't start this way, how to respond to those how not to get mad, how not to show facial expression, because everybody else in the organization, if they seize that, will not take risks the next day because they don't want to be that person. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was learned pretty late in my career, but that's, that's what I've come to believe. I'd want to finish, General, on uh, the last theme of strategic leadership and a few questions on this. And you've held clearly a number of positions at the strategic level now, both in the military and, and now in the, in the corporate world. One could argue that the most important thing is strategic lead, and having spoken to a number recently on these podcasts, um, their focus is very much about managing up and out and certainly looking forward to the, to the future of the organization in order to allow them to, to lead down and in. How did you find this challenge as a leader? Really hard. Harder than I think some of my peers did. I had been in the counterterrorist world, which was secret and a bit insular, and all the way to strategic fight, I didn't have to fight it publicly because we were secret. And then when I found myself a four-star in Afghanistan, I found that more than 50% of the problem in Afghanistan was not military on the ground. It was the confidence of the Afghan people, the attitude of Pakistan, the attitude of the European participants in the coalition. So in reality, the, the most important part of that mission, the strategic part, was in keeping everybody on board, yeah. making people believe we were going to get this done. And a lot of people were tired of it because I took over eight years on and whatnot. So I found that requiring skills and uh, experience that, that I had in smaller amounts than I wish I did. And when you talk about managing up, I had grown up in the world that says, you don't manage up. You do your job and your boss will take care of you or not. And I learned that's completely wrong. You have to manage up. And I learned some of that in JSOC, but by the time I got in Afghanistan, managing the political leaders and the perceptions is just extraordinarily hard in a profession where we profess not to do that. Yeah. You know, we profess that we're a soldier in the state, you know, boom, boom, we just do our job, but you're not, your job is, is that you've yeah. got to have the freedom of action and support to do what you do. So, so I found that remarkably challenging and, and I could have been a lot better at it. And blending your now current experience of the corporate world, how does strategic leadership differ from, from the military to, to that outside of the military? Yeah, it, it's not remarkably different because the good strategic leaders, I think, would step comfortably to either. In the corporate world, what I see good strategic leaders do is they set a very strong direction for their organization and they communicate it very clearly and constantly. And that's internal. They, they make sure the organization believes it is going from A to B. And then they do the same thing outside the organization. Sometimes it's to the marketplace. Sometimes it's to investors, whatever. They 
they portray a clear picture that doesn't just seem like marketing. It seems like it is real. And therefore, it can't just be smoke and mirrors. There's got to be substance to it. But the more you effectively do it, the more it becomes real because people believe in you, people invest and whatnot. So the best strategic leaders I've seen can do those two things and do it with a tremendous amount of focus and persistence. They're not jinking and jiving around all the time. They may be adaptable to changing conditions, but they're not adaptable to overall direction and desired outcome. And once you are not that way, you see struggle. And bringing it back to the the current crisis, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, you will have seen a lot of corporates that have thrived in the complexity of the current environment, whilst others have, have clearly struggled. What organizations have responded well and which are those that uh, have struggled? And, and what, can, what can we learn from the corporate world and vice versa? What perhaps can the corporate world le- learn from, from the military? The, the first thing I'd say is this is going to sound like a clever answer, but I don't think they know. I don't think successful and unsuccessful organizations know what they did differently. Um, in the first few months after COVID-19 hit, everybody suddenly, in many cases, had to go work from home, be dispersed, and then it worked. They were able to communicate by Zoom and it worked and they did pretty well uh, surviving. And they really patted themselves on the back and they said, this is a whole new normal. We're never going back to our offices. Now they're not saying that. They're saying something very different. Many of the things that they did in those first months were relying on muscle built up over time, relationships, habits, processes that they couldn't develop during a distributed environment. The ones who did very well, and I'm, this is not this is completely unfair, But many of the ones who did very well did very well because the conditions supported it. People who made the home food that people cook at home, people who sold cleaning products, they suddenly sold a ton of stuff and they they conclude that they're geniuses. And then people who do things that can't be done on movie theaters or whatever aren't doing so well and people think they're idiots. All of that was out of their control. And so we go back to what is in their control. And the answer is, I don't think we know right now. I don't think most organizations know how things are going to operate even three or six months from now. In the marketplace and the interaction of the world, they make these uh, pronouncements. This is what's going to happen. But when I look at people, I think for the most part, even inside, they know they don't know. And so now the, the goal is who can have scouts out? Who can be doing reconnaissance, figuring out what the market wants six months and a year from now and and responding, being adaptable to that? I think it's going to be a a fascinating time from now to call it a year from now. As some organizations try to go back to status quo ante, some try to go to some unsuccessful new model, and some just iterate their way to being very, very effective. Challenging times for sure. General, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, eyeing the clock and I'm, I'm conscious that time is against us. So I'd like to finish with a few quick fire questions that, as is customary on our podcast. Who's the best leader you've ever worked with and why? Uh, Sergeant Major Michael. Uh, he was my regimental Sergeant Major when I was a regimental commander. And then he came out of retirement to come to Afghanistan to be the senior enlisted uh, advisor in Afghanistan. He is the guy in the world who could, I would make a decision and pat myself on the back and he'd be nice in the room and then in the hallway when I'd say, you know, aren't I brilliant, Mike? And he'd go, you knew that six months ago. You could have made that decision then. And we're close friends. So, I mean, it, it wasn't that he was negative. He just was so steady 
so humble and so focused that he made me better. Great to see an NCO on your list. That's fantastic. Uh, most inspirational leader from history and why? That's so tough. Um, I kind of like Ulysses Grant. And the reason he's inspirational to me is, you know, he failed more than a man's got a right to fail. He struggled in so many things. And then when he was required to rise into the war, it wasn't easy. He didn't suddenly become a superhero on the battlefield. It, it took a couple of years. And then he just sort of doggedly kept on. And, and maybe that's, you know, sort of triumph for the ordinary guy. Maybe tells us any of us, if we're willing to do it, can do it. Most enjoyable leadership position you've ever held. Battalion command was amazing because you got enough people where you can make stuff happen and small enough you know them all, essentially. Uh, although leading JSOC in the middle of the fight was, was pretty special as well. But it was. With hindsight, what would you tell a young second lieutenant Stanley McChrystal straight out of West Point about leadership? You're going to make mistakes, but everything you do counts. So I would say I'd go back to the thing about self-discipline decide what kind of person you want to be. That, that will change a little bit with experience. Decide what kind of person you want to be and, and be that. Don't blow with the winds. Don't follow what your friends do or what people say. By that point in life, 21, 22 years old, you know what's right and wrong and decide on it, stick with it and follow it. I think most of us do that to a degree, but we all look back at times when we probably wavered and, and took detours more than we wish we had. Sage advice. Final question, General. What is your biggest leadership challenge in the future? Oh, my three granddaughters, six, four, and one. They live next door to me. So, you know, I get gang tackled every day. So, you know, if I survive this one, then I'll be a real leader. Well, it's a great wrap. We started with family. We ended with family. Couldn't be more poignant. General, thank you very much indeed for your time. My honor. Thank you. Well, what a fascinating conversation with a vastly experienced and, of course, highly respected military leader. So much ground covered in, in such a short amount of time. We spoke about the importance of experience and how, of course, we're all leaders of our time. But General McChrystal, reflecting back on his earlier service at a very difficult time for the US Army as it transitioned out of Vietnam. And also, I was impressed with how honest he was about his appraisal of his own leadership failures throughout his career, not just in those early years, but as a very senior operational commander. And of course, to grow as leaders, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be prepared to acknowledge the mistakes and learn from them, but also be vigilant to the leaders around you and learning from the success and the failures of others around us, as we are indeed here today. We talked about followership, and I was really pleased that he recognized the strength of the NCO Corps and the British Army, which has long held a worldwide reputation. The General talked about the two-way relationship with a leader who has the humility to listen and is willing to be corrected, but with followers who have to own the problem themselves, shared mission, shared loyalty to that mission. And of course, followership demands mutual support. Leaders who are expected to support those they lead, but this must be reciprocal. And the follower, him or herself, must be prepared to support the leader. We talked about the team of teams approach, made famous by the General's book of the same name where he talks about connecting the organization horizontally and vertically, communicating with your intent, communicating consistently, enabling your organization to be self-correcting as the problems evolved and morphed. 
importance of connecting the organization horizontally and vertically, communicating one's intent, communicating constantly and at pace, the whole organization therefore being informed, having this, having this true common operating picture enabled by advancing technology and in turn enabling the whole organization to be self-correcting as the problem evolves and morphs. This eyes-on, hands-off philosophy, how to decentralize decision-making, empowered, of course, by greater situational awareness, and with that devolved responsibility, and whereby the chain of command become enablers to those nearer to the face of the problem. We talked about cultural change, which is a very topical subject at this time. Those in a position of authority don't have to have all the right answers that organizations need to evolve and change together. I like this concept he had of whatever works, we will do more of, whatever doesn't, we will stop. He talks again about constant communication, communicating until people are sick of it. And of course, making the most of the brains that are spread across the organization and engaging them appropriately. And this led on to how best to harness different perspectives in your teams. Balancing this diversity of thought and experience with a relevance and applicability to the task in hand, which takes discipline and leadership. And we talked about risk, which General Crystal sought to reframe as threats and vulnerabilities, with the latter easier to understand and mitigate, and in so doing, providing better protection against potential threats. And finally, and encouragingly, our conversation opened and closed with a reference to our families and our loved ones, without whom, both as individuals and collectives, we couldn't do the job we do. Joint service, joint sacrifice. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast, visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, and follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.